When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tomorrow, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, will stand up in the House of Commons to deliver his first full budget. We know it'll start something like this. I now call the Chancellor of the Exchequer to make a statement. Jeremy Hunt! But what might come next? What will he say? Mr Speaker. And will it be enough to help his party close a huge gap in the polls after the chaos of last autumn? Turmoil after last week's mini-budget by the new government. The UK now facing what looks increasingly like a financial crisis. Just looking at the pounds, and it is quite traumatic. It's down by about a full cent against the dollar in a matter of a few seconds. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Jenny Kleeman. Today, what will be in the new Chancellor's first full budget? My name is Mehreen Khan and I'm the economics editor at The Times. So take us back to October last year. Kwasi Kwarteng, he'd just been sacked. Jeremy Hunt appointed as Chancellor. Liz Truss was just about to resign. What were Truss and Kwarteng trying to do? And where did it all go wrong? September the 27th was the date of the mini-budget. I now call the Chancellor of the Exchequer to make a statement. Chancellor! It was delivered on a Friday. We have cut stamp duty. We've allowed businesses to keep more of their own money to invest, to innovate and to grow. We have cut income tax and national insurance for millions of workers. And over that weekend, we saw probably the worst bout of financial turmoil the UK has experienced, probably since the financial crisis. The British pound hitting an all-time low today against the dollar. But unlike the financial crisis, this was not something that was happening elsewhere. This was a very UK-specific event. The Bank of England has made uh, dramatic intervention today to try to calm the markets. It is clear that parts of our mini-budget went further and faster than markets were expecting. So the way we are delivering our mission right now has to change. We need to act now to reassure the markets of our fiscal discipline. We had to have a new, what seemed like a caretaker regime, but has now become the stable government of the day. Ed, I'm sorry to interrupt you. We're just receiving reports that Jeremy Hunt has been appointed as the UK's new Chancellor. 
Jeremy Hunt very quickly announced that he was going to reverse almost all of the tax cuts that had been announced, around 50 billion. The government has today decided to make further changes to the mini-budget. We will reverse almost all the tax measures announced in the growth plan three weeks ago. And it took a couple of weeks, but eventually all of this was formalised in what was then called the Autumn Statement in November. And it was an opportunity for the government to repair the damage of its very recent predecessors. So today we deliver a plan to tackle the cost of living crisis and rebuild our economy. Our priorities are stability, growth and public services. Rewinding to uh, what Trust and Quarteng were trying to do, what did they think was going to happen with their fiscal policy and what actually did happen? What, what effect did it have on the markets? I think now the dust has settled. It's a fair assessment to say that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng definitely diagnosed some of the major problems with the UK economy. The problem was with their solutions. Kwarteng sort of put it as a dash for growth. But the way that the, the then government wanted to take us there was through big, big tax breaks. So you have these two very powerful forces, which is government policy or fiscal policy, as we call it, and monetary policy. And they're working in opposite directions. One is to try and juice up the economy and the other one is trying to desperately slow it down so inflation doesn't get out of control. That was a recipe for disaster if you were someone looking at the UK as a place to invest. And then we can also talk about, I think, some of the political issues, the fact that there was no independent assessment from the Office for Budget Responsibility that the Chancellor, previous Chancellor, had mentioned maybe changing the Bank of England's remit, maybe questioning the independence of the bank. And this sort of added up to this toxic mix, which led the pound to fall to its lowest level against the dollar in modern history. It led to a huge sell-off in UK government debt, which is foreign investors dumping UK bonds, which forced the Bank of England to intervene to stop some pension funds going bankrupt. So we basically had in the aftershocks of that moment, that dash for growth, a sort of localised financial crisis and major questions about the UK's political and economic stability. So Jeremy Hunt comes in, he reverses the Kwarteng Trust mini-budget. There's the autumn statement in November. But what didn't get reversed? What have we retained from the Kwarteng budget? There was a stamp duty holiday, which we still have a reduction in the value that people will pay when they sell their houses. The steps we've taken today mean that 200,000 more people will be taken out of paying stamp duty altogether. This is a permanent cut. Mr. Speaker, to stamp duty effective from today. Jeremy Hunt didn't reverse that entirely, but he shortened the length. I think the major issue was the subsidy for household energy bills. We're taking three steps to support families and businesses with the cost of energy. Which is something that the Trust and Kwarteng government didn't announce. It was very much overshadowed in the end. But it was a necessary and broadly welcome bipartisan measure to stop spiralling energy bills, hitting people. That £2,500 price cap was maintained by the Chancellor, capping the average household at £2,500, which is still a lot, but below what could have happened, estimates around 4500 if energy bills were allowed to rise in line with market prices. We're expecting that the budget tomorrow, he will extend it at the same level for another three months. And I think that was the one element, as I said, was overshadowed by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. But that was actually a major state intervention into the workings of the energy market. So in terms of how things are looking at the moment and what Jeremy Hunt is, is dealing with, is he still living with the legacy of the Kwarteng mini budget? 
it will be interesting to see what the Chancellor's messaging is at this spring budget, because if he wants to, he can very much play a continuity card to argue that actually the fiscal and financial aftershocks of that mini budget are still looming large on the economy and the UK's perception internationally. And he can use that very much as a cover to have a small c conservative status quo kind of budget where he effectively maintains a lot of the tax increases that he announced. And no massive spending. We are having falling borrowing. Around £30 billion is the undershoot that the the government is benefited from compared to where we thought they'd be in November. And I think a prudent policy would be maybe to spend half of it and save half of it. Uh, That would leave us in a relatively stable position. And it would be seen to be laying the groundworks for a more ambitious budget in this autumn, which would then probably mark around a year before a prospective general election. And it's probably a more politically opportune moment for a government of the day to announce slightly more generous spending or tax policies ahead of an election as a way to sort of burnish their electoral credentials before a vote. And Marine, in in terms of the bigger picture, how is the economy looking at the moment in terms of inflation, the anticipated recession? How how bad or, or good is the outlook? Lots of times when I'm on this podcast, it's usually to give people bad news. But I'm pleased to say tentatively that things have gone slightly better than I think most people would have expected. And there's two main drivers for that. One is a uncontrollable, very sharp decline in energy prices. They're now below the level that we recorded before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia um, just over a year ago. That's helped bring down the government's borrowing costs. It's helping bring down inflation very quickly this year, which we're expecting to happen in the next couple of months. And the other one is that the economy is not in recession. As I speak, we have not met the technical definition for what a recession is. Things like the World Cup helped boost spending a little bit at the end of the year. Weirdly enough, things like the return of Premier League football also helped. We've had these idiosyncratic factors, which meant the economy is stagnating, as in it's sort of bumping around zero, but we haven't fallen into a recession. And that's also helped this massive underspoken part of what's happened. The government is collecting record amounts of taxes from workers and from companies because inflation has meant that more people are dragged into higher income tax brackets and that we're paying much more to the exchequer. And that's helping give Jeremy Hunt, as I said, a bit more spending room. There are many things that Jeremy Hunt can control, and there are plenty of things that he he can't. And, and let's go through them, beginning with what he can't control. Give us a crash course in, in what the problems are that he faces. Inflation is one thing that is pretty much outside of the government's control. Then there's general economic and geopolitical environments. Of course, we're living with this war in Ukraine for over a year. There is still the possibility that energy markets can spiral again if that conflict worsens significantly. And the other one is is sort of the general environment in financial markets, which have been very, very volatile for the last couple of months. That's not necessarily anything to do with the UK. It's probably more driven by the US. But market financial volatility does impact the government's borrowing costs. And how about the things the Chancellor can control, the fiscal rules? The fiscal rules is a good place to start because that was part of the sort of hunt consolidation effort in November to create a new set of fiscal rules that he has said would you know bring the UK back to a place of relative financial stability. And just to sum up, they're very simple. One is to get the government's debt to GDP ratio declining within five years. 
And the other one is to ensure that the deficit, so the government's day-to-day spending, as it were, as a percentage of GDP, does not exceed 3%. And the irony of fiscal rules is that they're almost never met, always broken and then replaced. But given that it's only been a few months since they were announced, I think the Chancellor at this budget will make very clear that he's still incredibly committed to them and to ensuring that those fiscal targets are met and will take whatever the necessary measures are in terms of tax and spending policies to hit that goal. And that's not necessarily a message for voters, but that's very much, I think, a message for investors and financial markets to say that we have credible fiscal rules and I'm not going to jettison them after a few months just because a couple of things have changed in the economy uh, since the beginning of the year. So what might tomorrow's budget hold? We'll find out next. But first, a word from a colleague. I'm Oliver Wright, policy editor at The Times. My job is to try and explain what's going on in Westminster, what the government's doing, what the government's not doing, and why it matters to all of us. But we can only do this thanks to subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, tomorrow, Jeremy Hunt has his first full budget What kind of budget should we expect? It's a full budget in the formal sense. So we have fiscal statements or fiscal events. If this budget is successful, it's going to be a fiscal non-event. And actually, it will probably feel a bit more of a modest exercise. And that's because the Chancellor doesn't have too many levers that he can pull on. But there are two, I think, big elephants. One is public sector pay. So this budget is being held after nationwide strikes since last summer where civil servants, public sector workers, anyone from nurses to transport workers to teachers want 
better pay deals than the 3.5% the government is offering them. I think we've heard enough signs to suggest that the government will move closer to a figure of around 5%. And the other one is about businesses. So there's very little that I think the government can do in terms of real spending and investment, but it can try and incentivize one, businesses to invest, and two, a very crucial issue, which is to get people back into work. The UK has been suffering from this chronic problem of a shrinking labour force since the pandemic. People are leaving the labour force in their droves. That's also making inflation worse and also reducing the potential size of economic growth. One of the obvious things the Chancellor can do is use the tax system to get people in the 50 to 64 brackets back to work by sort of increasing things like the lifetime allowance for your pension so you can put more into your pot and you can take more out small incentives that can get people in the older age brackets back to work and alleviate this labour shortage issue. You're not expecting rabbits to be pulled out of hats. You're not expecting fireworks. But when Jeremy Hunt is in the House of Commons tomorrow, what are we expecting to hear from him when it comes to businesses, corporations? One of the major things that we're going to see introduced is the increase in corporation tax, which kicks in on April the 1st from 19% to 25%. And this became a political hot potato because Liz Trust had promised to keep it or maintain the 19% level as part of her general attempt to stimulate the economy through tax breaks by getting companies to invest more by reducing their tax burden. I don't think that 25% level is going to change, but we can see, I think, maybe the incorporation of some tax breaks for companies to lower that effective rate. So if you do lots in green investment, the government may give you some tax breaks for research and development. So I think businesses will be a massive focus of this uh, of this budget, small businesses, uh, innovation, uh, entrepreneurial companies, the idea of free ports may come back, so sort of small economic zones which have more advantageous tax breaks in little pockets of, of the UK. So these are not necessarily the sexiest things, but are very much the huge appetite and demand among corporates in the business world to make the UK a very attractive place to invest and set up your business. And in terms of what households can expect, you touched on the price cap, the energy price cap. It's expected to continue. Do we know how long for? A conservative estimate would be for at least three months to June. The other one, I think, which has been very well trailed and very highly anticipated is the extension of the fuel duty freeze and also another extension of the 5p cut to fuel duty. And otherwise, I think the message will be that inflation is coming down and therefore people's spending power should be a little bit boosted throughout this year, that the pressures on the on the finances of, of households will alleviate some to some degree. Another thing that many households will be thinking about is the cost of childcare. Can we expect any announcements about that? Yes, I think that's also one of the package of, I think, business announcements that we can expect, which is also about the labour force, because the government wants people to work and it definitely wants parents to go back to work. I think some tax breaks on childcare could be uh, among the realms of possibility. It's not necessarily too much of an expensive move, but I think it would be a good signal for the Conservatives to say as they've been saying for the last three or four years, that they're a party that supports people in work. Middle-class people who have to pay fuel duty, for example, who can afford childcare, but maybe you know not the types of childcare that they would want. This all sort of falls into, I think, a classic Tory vision of who are the types of people in the economy they want to support. When it comes to public spending, things like the NHS, schools, prisons, 
defence, broadly speaking, do you think this is going to be an austerity budget? Are we going to see real terms cuts announced tomorrow? No, I think austerity, it's become a very loaded word. It's one that you will never hear government ministers or treasury officials mention. You've mentioned defence, which I think is also an area where we're probably going to see an increase in spending. And that's because the general security and geopolitical environment means that there's more uh, of a push in the government to uh, maybe bump up its NATO contributions to the 2% of GDP that the government has committed to. I think the biggest public spending the government will commit to is public sector wages, rather than saying they want to boost investment in the NHS more than what has already been announced or was announced in November. Most of these things are very political exercises. So when we're a few years off an election, you can see a government raising taxes and trying to recoup money. And that money is then recycled and spent into the economy and on people closer to an election time. So I think the Chancellor, again, as he did in November, will give himself a bit of room to maybe pull those rabbits out of the hats closer to 2024, later in late 2024, to maximise the Tories' electoral chances. And for now, we're still a little bit away, which is why I think status quo will hold uh, in this budget on public spending. Let's go deeper into that now. The Chancellor faces huge challenges, has relatively little wiggle room. The next election is due in 18 months or so. Uh, The Conservatives are around 20 points behind in the polls. They're under pressure from the backbenches as well as Labour. Many backbench Conservative MPs want tax cuts. Is Jeremy Hunt going to be able to please them at all? Maybe not tomorrow. But I think he will put out a lot of signalling about what kind of chancellor he could be closer to the election. If Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak can say, look, now is not the time to do the tax cuts that you will want. But if you stick with me, I'm basically going to bank the savings that will then result in the tax cuts that we will unleash in a bid to win the next election. So he's probably going to be asking for patience, I think. And given that the reception to Liz Truss's budget, let's not forget from the Tory parties, was wild cheers, elation, which history is not going to look back very kindly on. I think that will also create some degree of uh, modesty among the backbenchers. I think what's really important is to also stress that we have an independent forecast from the Office for Budget Responsibility. Uh, which is also coming out on budget day. So as soon as the Chancellor sits down, the OBR will release its assessment of what he has announced and its impact on the public finances. And that's going to be a pretty crucial assessment in working out how much room the Chancellor will have beyond this fiscal year to, one, meet his targets, and two, whether there is room or what we call it fiscal headroom to do slightly more expansionary policy maybe in 18 months' time. And it'll be very interesting to see where the OBR's judgment comes down, because we do expect the OBR to actually cut its growth forecast for the UK, which is bad for the Chancellor, bad for its fiscal headroom. We also expect them to lower what something called the potential output of the UK economy. So where it thinks the UK can sustainably grow in future years, we expect that to even fall below 1% by the OBR, which again is bad for this Chancellor and also whoever's going to succeed him in the years to come. But in the short run, we know that the borrowing figures, as we said, are £35 billion better than we expected. So it's, I think, the very delicate case of whether the Chancellor wants to save his gains now to spend them later, or whether he actually wants to spend more of them now and hope that in the medium term, things look better just because we're already benefiting from quite a lot of good luck. And then he'll have a double boost to offer maybe in a year's time. 
And th- this is going to be a political judgment. And I think the government's relationships with the OBR and what it says about the forecasts, which have often been conflicting. Rishi Sunak had an infamously terrible relationship with the OBR when he was chancellor. And he thought that they were basically just out to get him all the time. It'll be interesting to see how that relationship plays out tomorrow. And what about Labour's Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor? What would she be doing differently if she had Jeremy Hunt's job? It's a really interesting question. And I think probably one of the more interesting parts of this budget is not necessarily the Tory dynamics that it will unleash, but actually what and how the opposition responds. The Labour Party has been forced into a position where I think it's also had to recommit to lots of the fiscal orthodoxy that Jeremy Hunt has announced. So famously, I think just before the November budget, a Labour minister went on broadcast television and said, well, whatever the findings of the OBR, we will agree with them and um, we we will abide by the recommendations of the OBR. Which is fine, I think, in principle to say, but if you want to put yourself in a position where you're not really going to be challenging too much of the fiscal orthodoxy of the government of the day, then it will reasonably lead to a voter to ask, well, what is the difference between your fiscal policies or plans for the economy and those of the sitting government? I think the task that Rachel Reeves faces is that she has to try and forge an independent economic ideology that still means that the government's books are balanced within a certain time period and debt is falling. But Labour doesn't have that stick that it had when Liz Truss was in power, which is these people have literally ran this economy into the ground and led us to become a pariah among financial markets. So I think it's an interesting and again, quite a delicate moment for the Labour Party who are now being looked upon a bit more seriously to provide real concrete policy ideas as we get closer and closer to that election. In the days and hours following every budget, the newspapers, broadcasts, analysts, they do a big analysis of how much life is going to be more or less expensive for the average person. What do you think voters are are going to be feeling when they look at that analysis? Do you think they're going to be happy? I think they'll be told to feel better about their situations because things will improve. I think we will see headline inflation rates falling back quite quickly if you believe the Bank of England will get down to nearly 4% by the end of the year. That's a dramatic fall from the 11% we registered this autumn. But as I said, I think it's difficult for people to feel better off. What people would want is more money in their pockets. And inflation still erodes the real value of your spending power. One thing I think is important to say is going to be a benefit, and it's a bit of a counterfactual, But we do not expect sharp rises in unemployment to accompany the slowdown in growth this year. So we have historically low unemployment rates, about 3.5 to 3.8%. At best, that will probably rise to just over 4%, but we will not see anything like the 7 to 8% we saw during the financial crisis. So people will probably be in jobs where they feel they aren't getting paid enough, but they're not necessarily going to be laid off or looking for work. The task that Jeremy Hunt faces is is to boost the UK economy, to make us better off. Uh, We have lived through a a period of incredible economic instability. Where have Jeremy Hunt's policies left us now on the global stage? If we spoke in November, we would say, well, you know, we had a little localised panic, but everything is fine. But actually, the, the geopolitical context has changed a lot. And the main factor that has changed is that the two biggest economies that neighbour the UK, so the United States and the European Union, 
are engaging in what looks like an ever-escalating subsidies wars to create clean technologies, to make chips in their jurisdictions, and to sort of win the race to net zero by pumping taxpayer money into industries. The UK is not doing that. And it's standing on the sidelines of this debate and for now hoping that it doesn't become collateral damage. The truth is, right now, the government does not have the fiscal space to do that. It simply can't go to the markets, borrow billions of pounds and say we're going to pump this into wind, solar, nuclear power, etc. And that's one element of it. The other element of it is that British businesses are likely to be enticed by these subsidies to leave the UK, maybe set up production in parts of the world where they will have access to subsidies, which is direct money they get from government straight into their accounts. And that could lead to job losses and a general loss of competitiveness, which means that we are not going to be at the forefront of the new economy, the digital economy and the green economy. It sort of begs the question about what kind of economy the UK is after Brexit, what it wants to be. And again, this is as much a problem for Labour as it is for the Conservatives. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, Jenny Kleeman, and my guest, Mehreen Khan, economics editor at The Times. You can find more of Mehreen's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Emma Taggart and Olivia Case. The executive producers were James Shield and Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow.